Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. Welcome to episode 10 of Sleep Talk, our podcast on all things sleep. And welcome, Moira. Hello, David. Hello, everyone. So this month, we're going to talk about restless leg syndrome and get into a bit what it is and hear from a patient who's got restless legs about what it actually feels like, as well as talk to Dr. John Sweeker about restless legs, what it is and some of the treatment approaches. Tickling pain, difficult to explain. It's inside my bones and causes me to beat on my thighs. It's a common thing we see in the clinic. Do you deal much with restless legs, Moira? Not, not as much as the other things that we see in the clinic. I would say mostly insomnia. It certainly seems to be comorbid with a few other conditions, as, as you would have seen too. And yeah, the ones I have dealt with, uh, it's been a real eye-opener for me in terms of the debilitation that I had really previously underestimated. Uh-huh. And I think that'll come out a bit more when we chat further into this podcast. So what about what's been happening in the last month with sleep, all things news, website, etc.? Well, you were a bit of a radio star, so didn't you do a piece <laughs> for Brisbane Radio yesterday? I did, I did. Yeah, that was exciting. I spoke to ABC Emma Griffiths on the Brisbane Drive Time Show. Yeah. And they have a really a, a segment they've been doing, a series on sleep apparently, that I was involved in this one yesterday on um, ageing and sleep, all that sort of stuff. So it was a really it was good eye-opener, good to talk about the fact that even then we, if we're ageing, you don't actually need less sleep necessarily, but it's just harder to get the good sleep. Yeah. And how do you like radio as a format after your TV <laughs> appearance last month? Oh, you know, I love the radio. I love the radio. I love the podcast. It's actually, a, it's a good space. It suits me really well. Yeah, I agree. I do like the audio format. It's a really nice format for trying to communicate information. So I've written a blog for a new um, health startup called Health Reporter, a really interesting startup looking at health prevention and trying to actually send out preventative health messages. Hmm. So check them out, healthreporter.com. Uh, and there's a post there about some FAQs about sleep and good sleep habits that I helped write for them. Is that health a porter as in pret-a-porter? As in a, <laughs> yeah, a porter? My, my pronunciation's <laughs> not quite... Well, like in that. French, it's like pre- ready to wear. So health ready... Maybe it means that. Like a por- maybe a porter or a porter. Yeah, same spelling. Is it? So, so yeah, maybe. maybe. My pronun- my pronunciation. <laughs> well, I'll, look, I'll check them out and have, no a, have a see what the meaning was with the, the, the title. And the other news this week is there's been a really important study in the treatment of sleep apnea that got published at the start of last week on in the New England Journal of Medicine on treatment for sleep apnea with CPAP and does it change cardiovascular risk? And I'll talk a bit more about that. Well, as that's, my, so that's my pick of the month. Oh, good. Yeah, we'll, we'll explore that further. That's been a massive study with thousands of people over many, many years in many, many countries. So, yeah, let's, let's, uh, that's caught my eye as well. So we'll talk about that later. Every day I'm shuffling. So the theme for this month is restless legs, and it is something we see really commonly here in the clinic. Uh, One, because it actually is pretty common. About uh, one in six people have experienced restless legs at some point in their lives, and about three in a hundred people get it bad enough that it interferes with their sleep and they're getting it most nights of the week. It's become such a problem that I had to change jobs. I don't think that most people understand the significant impact that it has on your life. I've had a few health issues, but this is a thing that annoys me, you know, night after night. Uh, And it can be a really difficult problem to treat, as we'll get into. So the first guest we're going to interview is Dr. John Sweeker. So John's a sleep physician who uh, works with us at Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre. He originally set up the centre back in 1993, over 20 years ago. 
Uh, and John's got a keen interest in restless legs. He's one of the members of the International Restless Legs Study Group and really seen as a world expert in restless legs. So thanks for joining us, John. You're welcome. So let's just get started. Talk us through what's the definition of restless legs? Restless leg syndrome is a common condition that many of your listeners will recognise. It's a condition where typically of an evening or at night time, people get this irresistible urge to start moving their legs around to find a comfortable position. Sometimes it's associated with a a weird sensation, a tingling or a burning. It gets worse of an evening and at night time and often impacts on people's ability to get to sleep and stay asleep. And what's the history of restless legs? When, When was it first described? So this is not a new condition or a disorder of the modern era. There are some good descriptions dating back to the 17th century of the restless leg syndrome. Uh, Thomas Willis in a textbook said that patients were in a place of greatest torture when they had restless leg syndrome. Wherefore to some, when being abed, they betake themselves to sleep, presently in the arms and legs, leapings and contractions of the tendons, and so great a restlessness and tossings of other members ensue, that the diseased are no more able to sleep than if they were in a place of the greatest torture. And back in those days, he was using opium to treat it. But in more recent times, we've had better treatments for the restless leg syndrome. And who tends to get restless legs? Well, it's a common condition, but gets worse as we get older. So we see it a bit more in women than in men. That's perhaps modulated a bit by the fact that iron deficiency is something that makes the condition worse. And it typically runs in families. So many of the patients we see can trace back two or three generations of people with restless leg syndrome, where in each generation, about half of the people get the condition. Why does it happen? What's some of the understanding about the biology of restless legs? In recent years, we've had a a lot better understanding about where restless leg syndrome comes from, and there's often a genetic basis to it. So we understand that in some people, there's an issue with the transport of iron from the bloodstream into the brain, and the brain needs iron to synthesize a chemical called dopamine. Turns out the dopamine stops some of those discomforts and twitches that creates restless leg syndrome. So, of course, it's made worse if your own iron level is low. In recent times, we found that the predominant form is the genetic form But there's also a secondary form that comes on later in life that may be related to kidney disease, disorders of the peripheral nerves and so on. And when we're seeing someone or health professionals are seeing someone trying to make a diagnosis of restless legs, how do you actually make a diagnosis? The diagnosis is clinical. So it's a constellation of of symptoms. So a compulsion to move, a discomfort in the legs, worse of an evening and at night time, made worse by inactivity, made better by moving around, and something that's not adequately explained by something else that could explain it, like just postural discomfort or cramps. So the, the history is, is classically something that you can make sitting across a desk from someone and asking them a series of questions. And so if we think someone's got restless legs, there are some tests that you and I would generally do. What type of tests are those? So we, apart from a history, we do a physical examination, make sure there are no obvious neurologic abnormalities on examining the patient. Typically in the primary form of restless leg syndrome, that genetic form, uh, there will be no abnormalities of the neurologic system. In uh, patients where we think there's complexity to their sleep disturbance, often we'll go on and do a sleep study. They'll tell us whether sleep apnea, another common sleep disorder, may be coexistent with their restless leg syndrome and be making things worse. In our experience, often treating both disorders gives someone the best improvements in sleep quality and daytime functioning. From some areas, there's a bit of a push not to do 
sleep studies in restless legs, I just find it a very helpful part when I'm making treatment decisions. Absolutely. So apart from either proving or excluding other sleep disorders that are affecting the sleep, you can go on and show a patient how bad their muscle twitches are, both when awake and when asleep. It's a nice visual example of the, that the condition truly exists, that it's not all in their head, uh, and may give you an index of severity that guides you as towards treatment. Yeah, and often we can characterise leg movements a bit better too because restless legs have one particular type of leg movements, but often there's other movements people can have during sleep. Yes, so the periodicity of those movements is often something that gives us a guide to whether this is classic restless leg syndrome abnormalities. So then someone comes to see you and they've got restless legs and you've gone through that investigation. What type of treatment are you going to talk to them about? It really depends on how severe the symptoms are. So mild and intermittent symptoms, you'd certainly keep a close eye on their iron stores. And even at the low end of the normal range, bumping them up to the middle of the normal range is shown to be of benefit in some patients. So make sure that anything that's making things worse uh, is actually looked at and treated. If they've got some coexistent sleep apnea, yes, manage that. But then it's often the case that if the symptoms are frequent or severe, uh, that you need to talk about medication. Run us through. What, what do you start with? In patients where traditionally in the past we've used the dopamine-stimulating drugs, the anti-Parkinson's disease group of drugs, um, we find that those medicines have a, a greater range of potential side effects nowadays. So we're steering clear of those, in particular issues around the development of symptom augmentation, where the legs run away from the medication, get worse during the day or involve other muscle groups. And so we've moved across to uh, other agents that we think are a little bit safer to use in this population, uh, and they include medicines like gabapentin and pregabalin in this setting. Moving on from gabapentin and pregabalin, and I agree, that's our sort of first-line approach, and international guidelines are now starting to reflect that. If someone's got more difficult symptoms, where do you go from there? So as long as you've uh, optimised their other exacerbating factors, corrected their their low iron, treated coexistent sleep apnea, you've got them on reasonable doses or the best dose you can get that's well-tolerated of something like pregabalin, then you might add in a dopamine-stimulating agent. Mm -hmm. So there are agents like Pramipexol that can be added in at low doses and even a transdermal patch for some people who need 24-hour control of their restless leg syndrome. So the, those agents we we typically add in to a baseline agent that we think is a bit safer. So it tends to minimise the dose of the two medications by using a little bit of both. We find that gives you a better balance between benefit and tolerability when managing these more severe patients. And because of your interest in this area, you do get even you know, the real tip of the iceberg in terms of very complex patients. Hmm. So what if they need more than two drugs? Yeah, so I certainly have patients who are on three or four agents, some that are shorter acting, some that are longer acting. At times, we need to go back to what Thomas Willis was doing in the 17th century and add in opiates. And because of our ageing population, for better or worse, we have a range of opiate-style medications, uh, some short-acting, some longer-acting, some transdermal patch-style opiates that can be added in the most intractable patients. But typically those are used as a way of winding back the dopamine-stimulating drugs. So really trying to simplify things at every turn, but in the end focusing very much on quality of sleep and quality of life. And you mentioned earlier about dopamine agonists and the sort of legs getting away from themselves and aug augmentation. Just what is that? So augmentation appears to be a rebound effect that occurs in patients, classically those stimulated with the dopamine receptor agonists. So these are the anti-Parkinson's disease group of, of drugs. It seems to be unique to that group of drugs. 
there have been some head-to-head comparisons of uh, more conventional medicines nowadays like pregabalin to things like premipexol, showing that augmentation appears to be occurring in that group. So patients who start developing symptoms earlier and earlier in the day, whereas before it was just of an evening and at night, those where before the, their legs were uncomfortable and now the arms are uncomfortable as well, should be alarm bells for those who are treating it and, and those who are being treated for their restless leg yeah. syndrome that we need to review where we're going as regards treatment. And what do you do if someone comes to you and they've got augmentation? What's the general steps that you take? So the focus for me is to start backing off on the dopamine agonists. That's really important. You may need to look at other agents that help the patient through that transition, whether it's a higher dose of gabapentin or pregabalin, whether it's adding in an opiate for a period of time, and again, going back and optimising things like iron status and so on, just making sure that it's, it's not something else in the background that's exacerbating their restless leg syndrome, and trying to take the focus off the dopamine agonist, because that's really the culprit in this augmentation syndrome. So what does the future hold for restless legs syndrome treatment? I think we've spent a a good couple of decades increasing awareness of the condition, the fact that it's real, the fact that it's prevalent, and the fact that it's treatable. The thing is that in a range of areas, both primary care, that is general practitioners, and in specialist care, there was a, a large shift, largely because of what we experts in the field were telling them to move across to the dopamine agonist. Now we're dealing with a lot of patients who've developed augmentation mm-hmm. and even those who have developed uh, impulse control disorders, also a potential side effect, uh, problem gambling and shopping and other issues with these dopamine agonists. So we now have a group of patients who are severely affected with restless legs but are having severe side effects from, from the drugs. So the future is that we try to wind back the sins of the past yeah. by getting people onto more rational treatment and reserving dopamine agonists as add-on therapy or second or third line therapy. Because we now understand the genetics of restless leg syndrome, this is an area where gene therapies may be, may be interesting to look at down the track, particularly for those who are much more severely affected. There's some tantalising thoughts about deep brain stimulation for those who are severely affected and they're intolerant to drugs. So a range of approaches that could bypass the mechanism that creates restless leg syndrome. Thanks a lot, John, for those insights. No, my pleasure. So now that we've got a better understanding of restless legs from that really nice explanation from John, I'd like to introduce Kevin Monk. And Kevin's had restless legs over many years, and he's been generous enough to share his experience with restless legs with us. So welcome, Kevin, and thank you for helping us out and talking to us about what it's like with restless legs. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to share it with people. So just to start off, what does your restless legs actually feel like when you get it? People describe it in... In different ways, I've heard of like scratching on the legs. For me, it's an irresistible urge to move my legs. So the worst form of torture you could do for me is hold me down and stop me from moving my legs in particular. That would just send me right around the twist. So I've just got that desire. I have to get up. I have to move my legs. And uh, that's the only thing that gives me any relief. Do you get it anywhere else apart from your legs? Uh, I have over recent years got it in my right arm, so mm-hmm. I've had to uh, just be aware of that, and I find that massaging that and it gives me the relief that I need. But yeah, I've noticed that 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 does happen, and I I get it in both legs, but not both at the same time, so I can't track anything. But it's sometimes the right leg, or sometimes the left leg, and sometimes the right arm. But that's about it. And when do the symptoms come on? I notice that they usually start. Once I start relaxing, so it might be, um, say, five o'clock 
in front of TV, I'll find that they start coming on then. Mm -hmm. That really annoys me because I'm trying to relax and as I get relaxed, I have the restless legs coming on and I find uh, I have to stand up and lean against something and then I I might get up and then it eases off. If I don't take my medication, it it, it might start anywhere from six or seven onwards and, and keep going. So that's that's the earliest. When it's been really bad, I've I've had it even driving in the car and after lunch. I've had to pull over and walk around. It's been been that annoying. And what have you found have been triggers or things that make it worse for you? Well, the one clear trigger is red wine, which really <laughs> disappoints me. Yeah. Uh, but I found that I had to ha- uh, take my red wine at lunchtime. But any time after that, I I just note that I'm up a few hours at night and I go, oh blow! I've just had red wine. Yeah. I, I don't have any triggers. Some people have triggers towards chocolate or caffeine or or cola or anything like that. I don't seem to have any any of those triggers. Mm-hmm. So so alcohol seems to be the one. Um, tiredness, which is sounds weird because if you've got restless legs, you're always tired. But if you're extremely tired, then that makes it even worse, and it t- tends to be a vicious cycle until you can get a a, a nap or a break. Uh, stress. For me, I've done some research, doesn't seem to pick with others, but for me, stress and anxiety tends to make it worse. So they're the ones uh, that really get me. It really annoys me, alcohol, because I like having a glass of wine at night. And um, that's the one I've I've ticked off my list. Yeah, and whilst I agree with you, often in the textbooks or the literature, it doesn't say much about stress. For a lot of people I see in the office, stress is a trigger for them, and they notice during periods either – bit more sleep deprived or a bit more stressed that the restless legs can be a bit more prominent. I've, I've found that in the work I do in emergency management and travelling a lot that I find that it, it's hard to identify which bit it is but it's mm-hmm. the travelling, it's the fatigue, it's the stress, it's the work, it's that whole cumulative process that tends to make it worse until there's a, a significant outbreak in time where, well at least for me, I can... Say get to a weekend and have some naps and some serious sleep. I might have a, a sleep Saturday afternoons deliberately an hour just to try and do that catch-up and that seems to break that restless leg cycle. So as yep. soon as I break that fatigue, it makes the restless legs better of a night time. And lots of people get restless legs. And what I want to try and tease out is the severity or the impact because whilst lots of people get it, often lots of people get it mildly. And it doesn't really have a major impact for them. And they're sort of, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I've, I've had that. So try and, yeah, give us a feel for, you know, there's restless legs and there's restless legs. Yeah, well, I reckon I've had it for about 20 years, but it's only the last five, 10 years that it's been a real problem. And it, it's become such a problem that I had to change jobs. So I had a nine to five uh, job in, uh, in the government and my restless legs got so bad that I was walking around the house a lot of the time at night and I was just so exhausted during the day. Mm-hmm. I remember going to work one day and people said, I oh, remember that meeting and I had I could not remember it. My cognitive function had gone and I was just so exhausted all the time. I was depressed and I had to change my work style yeah. and uh, I changed, had to change jobs. So it affects my life and still does. Mm-hmm. I'm always fatigued. I don't know what other people do, but I, when I get up at night, I tend to want to eat. And so I've put on weight and I've got type 2 diabetes and I know that's not that automatically go hand in hand, but it's that, again, it's that vicious cycle of lack of sleep, restless legs. And it annoys my wife because um, 
you know, I'm twitching and turning at night and she's trying to get a good night's sleep so it annoys her so I get up and go to another room and, until I'm asleep or ready to go to sleep. Yeah, and the eating's actually something that other people describe as well. There have been a couple of papers on night eating in people with restless legs and it being more common in people with restless legs. Yeah, well, it's it's. I don't know why you you want to eat, but it's uh, it's something to do, something to take your mind off restless legs. I, I watch TV or I've, I play games on the on the computer or something like that. That often distracts it, but it's mm-hmm. just that constant movement, trying to distract, trying to do some stretches or something like that. But it's ultimately just trying to get my mind off restless legs and focus it elsewhere, and and that might take half an hour or an hour for the things to calm down. Yeah. So you've alluded to a couple of things you try for your restless legs. Just run us through what you've tried over the years. I've tried most things. I've tried a, a naturopath, I've tried a chiropractor, an osteopath, an acupuncturist. I think I've I've tried mindfulness meditation and uh, none of them really worked. Unfortunately, yep. I have to resort to uh, uh, the medication. And I, well, I go back and I think the mindfulness meditation is part of that reducing that stress cycle so I, I don't think it completely eliminates restless legs yep. but I think it just reduces the stress levels. Yeah and that's my thinking too it was never when we were piloting that type of treatment or thinking about it it was never about this is going to be a fix but might help with that emotional layer or the stress layer that comes with restless legs. And it's probably trying to be a bit more caring for yourself instead of being so critical Mm-hmm. Why am I got this? Why, am I, why is this happening to me? It's just trying to sort of learn to say, well, you, you've got to take care of yourself, take it easy. I've got out of the out of the mindfulness process, mm-hmm. which tends to make it a little little less stressful. And what about medications? So run us through some of the medications you've been on and how they've worked for you. The two main ones I've tried, gabapentin's the one that works best for me, and that seems to reduce it once it kicked in. I find that that reduces my restless legs during the whole day. So mm-hmm. if I don't take it, I find that it, uh, restless legs kicks in, as I said, in the afternoon and evenings. I've tried reprieve and that's all right. It uh, doesn't seem to have the effect that, for me anyway, that gabapentin has. And when I'm travelling, uh, especially on uh, an overseas trip, and, and you've helped me with this, I actually have a timetable of take first tablet, an hour later take second tablet, Six hours, take another one, yep. and I have a, a timetable of medication to make sure I don't get restless legs on the plane, and then I reverse that coming back. So you imagine on a 24-hour trip to England, yep. that's, that's a major problem, and I have a, 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 an aisle seat so I can get up and walk around. Yeah, that's a nice tip, the aisle seat, getting up and walking around. Yeah. Because, yeah, lots of people I see with restless legs, plane flights are a real sort of red flag for them. And... Oh, they're, a, they're torture for me. Uh, I go everywhere I go uh, when I'm traveling, take kids overseas, is I take a, I've always got a reprieve in my wallet. So that's mm-hmm. my last resort. And everywhere I go traveling, I always make sure I have medication on my body in case I lose my bag or I lose my medication or toiletries. So I've got enough to get me through a couple of days in case something happens so or I'm trapped. Yeah, and that's a nice point. Some of the research we've done looking at the th- thought processes in restless legs, you know, fear of the medications not working was a really strong theme for people. And a lot of people I see do exactly that, you know, that thought of what if I got caught without my medications, I'd be screwed. Yeah. You know, I'd really be in a lot of trouble if that happened. Well, that's why I keep the reprieve as a spare. 
mm-hmm. in, in my wallet. I've, I've been out to restaurants where I've had to finish my meal standing up or been around to a friend's place and the restless legs kicks in for whatever reason and uh, I just I have to stand up and, and most people I know now I've got that problem, they're all right with it, but I have to have the reprieve and that kicks in relatively quickly so yeah. uh, it calms down. And have you ever developed augmentation with reprieve? Is that something that's troubled you? Yeah, and that's why I've, I've been happy with the gabapentin because that doesn't seem to have that uh, augmentation effect, whereas reprieve does. So after a while on reprieve, it tends to make things worse. So I've, I've been up, you know, virtually every hour, and I think, oh, what's happening? And it's it's the reprieve not working or the augmentation on that, mm-hmm. and I think time for a change. But yeah, that does. It's happened a couple of times. It's made it a lot worse. But the beauty with gabapentin is, I found that for the most part, it doesn't have that. Doesn't seem to have any side effects. Yeah, and as you know, I like gabapentin. It's yep. one of my go-to sort of first-line treatments. You're a little unusual in that people with you know difficult restless legs, like you've got, be unusual. They respond as well as you do to gabapentin. So a lot of people I'd see, like yourself, might be on two drugs or even three drugs. Well, I'm happy with that so far. So it, it seems to work and I, I can cope with that. Yeah, and with all your experience with restless legs, what are some things you wish maybe healthcare providers you'd seen had understood about restless legs or others around you just understood about restless legs? I don't think that the medical profession, I don't think it, most people understand the significant impact that it has on your life. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of talk about uh, fatigue and exhaustion from lack of sleep or lack of quality of sleep. I think restless leg contribute as one of the great contributors to that. I've had a few health issues, but this is the thing that annoys me. You know, night after night, even with the gabapentin, I usually get up once a night at one or two o'clock to walk around the house, and then things settle down and impacts your whole life. Uh, and I don't think think people get that. People just think, oh, he's twitching his legs or he's moving. Uh, but they're just the lack of sleep. And I actually think, for me, I'm not even aware of it, but I think I've got, I have restless legs while I'm asleep. And I think I twitch and move and all that sort of stuff. And I think my quality of sleep is not that good uh, anyway with restless legs. And uh, I think the medical profession just need to be aware of the significant impacts that can have on people's lives and look it's it's as i said i had to change jobs to cope with it so i can now work a couple of days every now and then and have a couple of days off just to manage the fatigue and tiredness thanks very much for your insights kevin that's really helpful thanks happy to chat oh that was a great interview dave thanks thanks for doing that and thanks to kevin for his time it's so important to hear the patient voice in this isn't it like we had with with jackie with narcolepsy and as i said earlier it's something that until I worked here, I had no idea. I'd heard of restless legs, I'd done exams, and I knew I know about it. I I had no idea that it was so debilitating and can be so severe. And I think Kevin gave such a great description of, of really compared to a, sort of a lot of other chronic health issues, it's really probably his most debilitating one. Yeah, and it was really generous of Kevin, and I really um, appreciate that and appreciate the value of him sharing that. So people can really get an understanding of the impact it has because that's what we see every day you know people that are coming to see us and they talk about what restless legs um how it affects them what it means to them it really has a major impact yeah but but it's not widely seen like that in the community so what 
can that make? How does that make people feel if something that's troubling them really is not well validated? Oh, well, it seems. Yeah, I'd imagine when people report to me, it's a very isolating experience, and you can feel very alone in your suffering, and you can feel that there's not a good plan around it as well, or not a lot of um, you know social support. We talked. I mean, as a health psychologist, my main thing really is is thinking about the psychological and the social support for people for their condition, and I guess. If there's not a lot of understanding around there, and so from family and friends, and even maybe the medical team sometimes, depending on, or, or the, and the psychology team, then yeah, it's it's terrible. Like if if you don't feel if you've got that support, so support is everything. Support and understanding will will lead to increased confidence, increased quality of life. A whole lot of things will be improved once you actually get that understanding. And restless legs really common. So most women have experienced restless legs at some point in their life, mm. particularly during periods of yep. iron flux, yeah, like like pregnancy, pregnancy. Yeah. And so it can be easy for people to dismiss because yeah. people go, "Yeah, I had that. It wasn't a major deal. Yeah. It just passed. I only had it for a little period of time." Yeah. I think so. I think that's what I originally thought too because of my little – and I get it a little bit if I'm tired, like overtired, I'll, mm-hmm. I start to feel a little bit. It's a bit of a, a tired sign for me but it's nothing like – I didn't even realise until I worked here and met patients like Kevin that it's actually painful. You know, it can it can be painful. And one woman I saw many years ago, she talked about it being – and she'd had a range of things too. She had breast cancer. She'd had a lot of difficulty. She'd lost her husband. She'd had a range of really challenging life experiences but she said nothing was worse than her restless legs oh, and her insomnia. She had comorbid. I think yeah. they were sort of feeding each other. She couldn't sleep because she had to keep walking yeah. and she would walk and walk for miles yeah. at night yeah. in a rural area, just walk for like five, four Ks in the middle of the night. Yeah. And there's been so. a bit in the medi- medical literature about restless legs being a drug company beat up and drug companies just mm. trying to sell drugs to people with restless legs. Mm. There's sort of a swell of it round in about 2006 when uh, GSK had a drug called Ropinarol that they launched and there's a bit of opposition to that, particularly in the UK and some articles around yeah, restless legs isn't a real condition. Mm-hmm. And that really, for people who've got bad restless legs, that's just can be, yeah. um, you know, really takes away their validation. Well, maybe it seems like it because there are different levels of it. I suppose it's a bit like insomnia, isn't it? That, yeah, and, depre- and depression, to be true. fair. Yeah. You know, we talk about, you know, big D and little D depression and big yeah. I and little I. Yeah, nice so maybe yeah. there needs to be some almost different classification, you know, RLS with a capital, well, they're all capital. But it's a, there are different levels and so there's a different level of debilitation and in its extreme, in its chronic extreme form, it's of course it's a real, it's real in any sense anyway. But obviously, the, there's we've got to maybe think about the way maybe it needs to be called something else. Well, there's, <laughs> there's been an attempt at rebranding. Yeah, it is Willis Ekbom syndrome. Oh yes, that's right. I remember seeing that, thinking, syndrome, what's that? Syndrome Foundation. <laughs> yeah. Um, Temporarily, sort of changing their name mm. hasn't really stuck. No, so. I don't think that's a good name. <laughs> I don't know if it changes. Well, just soon, soon, it sounds more severe, though, doesn't it? Yeah. It sounds like you might. Oh, I think that sounds like an obscure thing that needs a bit of attention. But I certainly think it's something in the title, really, that restless leg syndrome. Just it doesn't really equate. I mean, people have it in its most extreme condition. Doesn't give it enough justice. But that when there was that. F- Talk about that it's not a real condition. Surely there was a lot of people coming out and advocating. Yeah, you would have think you would have thought so, but not really. Ah. And even as as recently as 2013, 2014, in the British Medical Journal, there's been letters about restless legs just being a beat up, and hmm. so it's still really something that, that keeps surprises me. Back. But I guess we do see a skewed 
sample though, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. You know, in a in a sleep disorder centre, you do see the more extremes, or yep. the, the ones that haven't necessarily just got better themselves, or it's you know it's it's yeah. gone on for a long time. Yeah, exactly, and because of John's particular interest in yeah. restless legs yeah. over many years, yeah. this practice does tend to have uh, mm. a lot of people with restless leg symptoms mm. and quite severe patients. Just to give people an idea. We looked at doing some, or we actually did some restless legs research a number of years ago, and we could easily identify over 500 people in the practice with bad restless legs who'd been on multiple medications mm-hmm. um, and been seen. So it is something we that's do. So it's a big cohort, them. yeah, the big cohort to draw on. Now, one of the things I wanted to draw you out about, Moira, mm-hmm. was Kevin talked about he tried mindfulness for restless legs. Mm-hmm. Why might that work? Mindfulness, it's about really, you know, the principles of mindfulness are. Uh, acceptance you know of the present moment without judgment like trying to be more open to what's happening and reducing the catastrophization and the frustration and the difficulty around what's going on and you feel like you can't change it mm-hmm. so a bit like mindfulness is useful for a range of things as we know insomnia and chronic pain anxiety anxiety depression so it's no surprise that it can be useful for restless legs as well because it, instead of trying to change or get rid of something it actually just encourages you to have a more philosophical approach to managing it better and to actually sitting with the discomfort. There was a very nice quote I saw recently over the last week or so and um, follow Ariana Huffington on Instagram and there was a John Kabat-Zinn quote saying, you can't stop the waves but you can learn to surf. So in a, in a way that you, you might not be able to stop the legs being restless. You may, not, you may always have that. You may be really frustrated by it. It may be awful. But you can learn to actually surf, as in ride with it a bit, actually make sure that you can learn some mindfulness. Mindfulness, uh, there's a range of different techniques, of course. You can do some breathing techniques. You can do some visual ones, some auditory ones. There's a range of things. But it's probably underlying is more the, the approach, the way you change your thinking about something that you actually start to not rally against it. You actually start to say, okay, well, I have to sit with this. I have to have Mm -hmm. trust and patience and not not try too much and not judge. I mean, obviously it's really hard to not judge if your legs are really hurting and 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 you can't sleep because they're not being able to be still. But trying to at least attempt to start to distract yourself from that and and to have a more philosophical approach to... The fact that, yep, they're there, the legs, are, it's not ideal, it's, it's unwanted, yeah. but I'll actually just sit with that or I'll go for a walk or I'll do this and I'll, and I'll come back to um, attempt to sleep in about, you know, I'll try again in half an hour, I'll try again later. So I think that's where the mindfulness has been useful and the research that we did do showed that people really enjoy the not only the techniques, but they really enjoy the principles of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And same with our studies we've done with insomnia and mindfulness. It's actually roundabout. People have actually said, look, I really enjoyed just changing my thinking around it. So thanks very much for helping to round out that discussion about restless legs uh, symptoms. If you're looking for more information about restless legs, check out the RLS Foundation's website. They've got a great range of information, really helpful information as well, things like uh, brochures for what you can give your surgeon and your anaesthetist if you're coming into surgery and you're having restless legs, things you can give your healthcare provider, things you can give friends and family to explain about restless legs. Okay, Dave, what's your tip of the month? So keeping it RLS-related... I've really got two short tips. One's for health professionals and the other is for patients. So the health professional tip is restless legs when we're treating it, particularly with medication, is not a set and forget type of treatment. 
There's almost no one I see with difficult restless legs where I can put them on a medication and say, look, that's what you're going to take and it's going to continue to work forevermore. It often is just having to adjust the medications. So just be aware of that, that there is a constant need often to just adjust things. The tip for patients really was reminded by what Kevin said about always keeping medication with him, Mm. is always have some medication on you. Because getting caught out, if you've got bad restless legs, getting caught out somewhere without Mm. your medication can be an awful experience. Whereas if you've just got in your purse, in your wallet, one or two of your medications that you know will take the edge off your symptoms, if you get stuck away from home and you're not expecting or you're home late, you can at least have some medication to help take the edge off your symptoms. That sounds like good advice. So what's your pick of the month, Moira? Um, well, it's been some really interesting things of late, haven't they? It was hard for me to, to narrow it down. But I think the thing that um, really took, caught my eye was the study that was out about a month ago and it was from the um, in America a group from the Ohio State University, mm-hmm. and they looked at several young children. Like there was, I think there were different cohorts, but the ones I'm remembering was like sort of age three to five. And the time they went to bed, like kids that went to bed earlier, say an hour earlier, like before eight, were way less likely to be obese as teenagers, like later yeah. on. And I thought that was striking. Like yeah. that was really interesting to me. And I assume, and I, I mean, I, I looked into it. It was a look. It was a. Um, I will have the journal on in the show notes. It was from the Journal of Something Pediatrics, and I'll have to we'll get the proper details for you. And I assume that they did control for other factors because you might think, oh, look, of course they're they're, staying, they're going to bed earlier, so they've got lots of other different techniques, or the parents have got more boundaries, or they're they're into health food more, or they might be. But I think all things considered, it was a distinct. Um, risk factor in yeah. its own right, so that that was really interesting, and I, I encourage people listening to to check have a have a look at that paper. Yeah, and we'll put the link in the, mm. in the notes. What about you? What's what's your um, what's your pick of the month? Yeah, well, for me, it's the Save study. So really, mm. looking at that first large study, looking mm. at CPAP as an intervention for sleep apnea with reducing cardiovascular risk as the outcome. Mm. And they enrolled around 2,700 patients with mm. moderate to severe sleep apnea and high baseline risk of cardiovascular disease that already had a cardiovascular event or a cerebrovascular event, and then randomised them to CPAP plus usual care or usual care and followed them over around three and a half years and surprisingly showed that CPAP over that period of time didn't reduce the risk of future cardiovascular events which flies in the face a bit of what the field has thought, that, hey, you've got bad sleep apnea, Mm -hmm. you need to get on CPAP, it's going to prevent problems down the track. Yeah, more risk. We're always telling people they're much more risk of stroke, more risk of heart attacks. So there must be still some... I mean, why have we been saying that? There was was link. There there have been some evidence. Absolutely. So there's (laughs) there's subtleties in the message. You know, the headline message is no effect on cardiovascular or reducing future cardiovascular events. But the things we've shown in previous research are not so much intervention things, more in an observational sense, that people with sleep apnea are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease and incident cardiovascular disease. But we've never really done an interventional study to see mm. does intervening reduce that risk. Yeah. And then if intervening doesn't reduce that risk, or well, was it a problem with the intervention? You know, hours of use of CPAP was a bit short at yeah, yeah, I was going to say, is it based on the, maybe the hours per night or the days per week or the amount of years? Like maybe yeah. there's something that – because how long were they following yeah, them for? It, it was over a long time, wasn't it? I did a post hoc analysis looking at hours of use mm. and didn't find that that made mm. a difference in terms okay. of the cardiovascular risk. 
maybe it's just that the sleep apnea itself isn't causative mm. of those risks mm. and it's part of what you get. There's something about that <clears throat> cluster of diabetes, obesity, mm. hypertension. Stress, um, feeling yeah, tired and, and low mood. also gives you sleep apnea mm. and gives you cardiovascular risk yeah. rather than the sleep apnea being the causative factor. Anyway, we'll, yeah. we'll see. There's a lot more to come out and a lot more discussion to be had about that paper and I'm sure we'll circle back to it in this podcast mm. down the track once there's been a little bit more discussion in the field about it. Yeah well it caught my eye too and I, then I thought I better have a different pick of the month because I knew, <laughs> saw that you were going to talk about it Thank you. Uh, because my what I thought was interesting because I was I've been waiting for that study I've been hearing about it at conferences for a long time yeah. and what even though there wasn't that it wasn't shown to have that um, reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease or events it was really clear cut that there were definite lifestyle or quality of life benefits. Yep. Don't you think in, in terms of just uh, feeling better, yep. low, better improvement in mood and, and that sort of stuff. And that's my bread and butter. That's what, yep. I, that's what I'm looking for for an outcome all the time. Yep. You know, that's what I, that's my focus as a health, you know, as a psychologist. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I agree and, with you. And I think they're extraordinarily. And worth pushing still. So, absolutely. Yeah. Extraordinarily yeah. valuable outcomes, mm. but it is a bit of a recalibration for some of the field, which has been pushing very hard that barrow of you need to treat your sleep apnea with CPAP or you're going to suffer these cardiovascular consequences. Mm. Mm. And that just yeah, has to, we have to recalibrate that thinking. So what's coming up? What, what should we be looking out for in the next month? So this week is actually Idiopathic Hypersomnia Awareness Week Ooh, from September 5 through till September 11. Hmm. And that's something that's organised by Hypersomnolence Australia. And the theme for this year is improving quality of life for people with hypersomnia. And, you know, as you know, we see lots of people with hypersomnia. So really want to encourage people to promote that and promote the Awareness Week so that people get a better understanding of that condition. What about the theme for next month's podcast? So next month's podcast, we're going to talk about healthy sleep. You, you'll be all over this as a health psychologist. I love it. Moira, so yes. I'll certainly be, be my forte. <laughs> so certainly be teasing you out about what you define as healthy sleep. Mm. And we'll have interviews with uh, Professor Dan Bicey from the United States, as well as Bridget Walsh, who's the general manager of Golden Door uh, Health Retreats uh, here in Australia. Great. Can't wait. So thanks for listening to this episode. If you've got any suggestions for future episodes, send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And if you like the podcast, make sure you do a review for us on iTunes. And you can subscribe via any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.